Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Ideal Systems podcast. On this episode, we'll be speaking with Dahlia Malim, a young Muslim woman who lives in Edmonton, Alberta, a city that has seen a surge of attacks, hate-motivated crimes, really, based off of Islamophobia against believers of the faith, but also against people who identify with the minority groups. We'll be talking with her, what's the root cause of these, why now, what can we do going on, and what her personal experiences look like. With that being said, let's welcome her to the podcast. So as a definition, what is Islamophobia? I have like thoughts about this because yesterday my sister and I were talking about how Islamophobia is almost like a misnomer, but it also makes a lot of sense because it's like phobia connotates fear, right? But at the same time, it's very much like um, like an Orientalist view of people, of like thinking that they're violent, thinking that they're oppressed, thinking that they're backwards. Um, so it's sort of like creating a monolithic view of Muslims um, that doesn't necessarily mean people are scared of us, as like phobia might make you think, but it kind of, um, it's just like a mechanism of hate that fits into like this wider mechanism of hate which is white supremacy that like is like kind of fuels that right um I don't know if that was even really succinct but like yeah it's not necessarily a phobia it's like a set of prejudices yeah I also feel as if for some reason like any most people in like the western sphere of the world just believe as if they have some kind of liberation to do for anyone who is a Muslim so sometimes it doesn't even feel like it's fear of us, but it's like the fear of our ideologies because they feel as if it's going to hurt their ideologies and therefore hurt the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think like um, it's definitely like, you know, the whole kind of joke of like the unstoppable wave of Islamic communism as like a propaganda tool. Maybe that just exists in memes, but I feel like it's it's a meme with death nonetheless. What does that mean? Like, I have no idea this existed. Like, people always just joke about how, like, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of really extremist right-wing people in, like, the global north think, like, Islam is, like, uh, this, like, communist religion or, like, a uh, religion that, like, fundamentally um, threatens, like, Western, quote-unquote, Western values. Um, and so people, like, joke about how, like, one day we will prevail, but it's, like, totally a joke that feeds off of, like, that stereotype of, like, Muslims are trying to change the essential state of the world. Yeah, I feel that for the most part, all we really want to do is also be able to go to Costco, walk with our families, be able to garden, get some kind of education, live like a decent middle class life. Like beyond Mm -hmm. that, I like I've never met a Muslim who has like an agenda that isn't that. Yeah, literally. What agenda? (laughs) Like, I don't know. Definitely, um, I'd like to go to Costco without being stared at, especially the Costco, like, in the kind of, like, little enclaves outside of Edmonton. You go to those ones? Wow. I'm scared for my life. I'm shaking in my boots. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> with, like, um, Islamophobia, like, currently being on the rise, as we can see, there, like, there, there have definitely been some patterns, um, especially because, okay, so there's a few parts to this. And let's just start off with a general primary instigator of Islamophobia and kind of what's causing it. I think in Canada, especially, it's kind of like, like I said, like that overarching um, ideology of white supremacy um, because of like the kind, like the ways in which Islamophobia is implemented. Like it's not necessarily um, just a religious, just a religious stigma. Like it's also a racial stigma. It's also a gendered stigma. It exists in all of these um, 
different, like, it exists in so many different ways that are kind of like sustained by white supremacy. Um, and I also think, especially in Alberta, like we've seen in the past few years, the amount of like organized white nationalist groups have like skyrocketed. Like there's an insane amount of them um, and they're not treated like they're hate groups. Mm-hmm. They just are allowed to like go on Facebook and plan to do stuff or like intercept protests or harass people. If we were to do a comparative you would have something like ISIS or the Taliban sitting on the other side. And like like the United States of America went out of their way to literally make a different prison for them, like Guantanamo Bay, which is like a human rights violation on its own, to create this entire wave of war on terror, mm-hmm. to place like such heavy sanctions on like Iran that it like struggles to exist, you know, to put like legitimate military into Afghanistan. So my point is, I just mm-hmm. feel as if there's like white supremacists just aren't held accountable at the same level as a terrorist or a supremacist on the other end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm, for sure. I think especially because like when I see, especially like with the war on terror and how like, you know, there was a substantial amount of like, you know, carnage from 9-11, but then like how many people died with, you know, United States interventionism or, you know, like imperialism is really what it was like in those countries like in specifically Afghanistan mm-hmm. and like uh and Iraq as well you know as well as like other countries right like how many people died and it's yeah. just like Guantanamo Bay you hear the stories of people from Guantanamo Bay and it's almost as if there's like a desensitization to these people's pain to like the suffering of civilians in these countries um and it's like the whole justification of this war on terror is that the United States is like protecting their freedom but what does your freedom have to do with like my friend's aunt in IDOC? Like what is what is the correlation other than like a complete desensitization to those people's pain and suffering at the expense of like your own country's basically economy and world power? Yeah. So I know there okay, so you've probably read nineteen forty eight or sorry, nineteen eighty four by mm-hmm. Orwell. Is no it's is it by Orwell? I think it is. Yeah. okay so it's really interesting because the entire time big brother is just like we're at war with x y and z now and then at the end of the book they like change the whole rhetoric and are just like we're at war with this other country so it's almost to instill nationalism via the mechanism of fear and i think Mm -hmm. that's like a primary source of how people are just like ah yes now i must protect my own democracy because and the only way to do that is by hating on the people who apparently don't want democracy Right. And it's it's and it's not that like we don't have sympathy for, you know, survivors of 9-11 or the people impacted. Of course we do. Like mm-hmm. that was like there's no excuse to that. But the problem is like the lack of empathy that goes for anyone and everyone. Even else. like um when we do talk about like, you know, immigrants coming to like Canada or the US, like putting up with so much hate and so much bigotry just because like they almost feel like it's the price they pay we're even just destigmatized to that when it happens like to our neighbors you know what I mean or to ourselves in this case like we're even destigmatized to like yeah that level of pain which is right in front of us and I think we also saw that sort Mm of um cognitive dissonance and like with BLM the past summer like how many people just thought like this is an overreaction but it's like is it an overreaction or were you just not paying attention like Mm -hmm. yeah like we almost have like a different stream of emotion. I think a big part of it is because most immigrants are just made to feel as if they're just lucky to be liberated. 
and like Hassan Minaj said it really well where he said well it's kind of like immigrant tax where we feel as if we almost like deserve a little bit of racism or a little bit of prejudice or to have things a little bit harder than everyone mm-hmm. else which I also think like I don't know even the act of like coming to Canada as an immigrant is like not even necessarily uh, a fully individual choice I feel like a lot of times our countries have been destabilized for different reasons by different western powers not necessarily like super recently Mm -hmm. where like you know immigrants coming now might feel disconnected from the fact that like maybe there was French imperialism or even U.S. interventionism but it's like those those factors were so destabilizing that it's like immigration is still almost like for a lot of people a form of displacement you know what I mean and Mm -hmm. so it's almost like we're paying a price for safety if that makes sense like I think a really good economic example of that is like the Indian subcontinent. So prior to like the British Raj and the Britain, like Great Britain coming into India, India owned about like 25 or I think 28% of the world's economy share, like over its like exports and imports. When Britain left, it had about 4%, which is right. Yeah. Because when Britain came, like India was just basically like like a farm for them to get whatever they wanted and then Mm -hmm. to like leave by leaving them absolutely destabilized by leaving so much so much like social impact like and that's like the war between hindus and muslims like that never existed Mm -hmm. um my like my grandpa always tells me he's just like we used to sit on like the same charpai so a charpai is kind of like a couch bed that they make locally and he's like we used to sit all together and then all of a sudden like the like the divide was announced and everyone just changed so like the kind of history that exists i think like i I think 100 percent like the blame goes on like western civilizations and like and Mm -hmm. and it's also not that like and it's also not that like immigrants are poor or as if like canada is taking like really poor people who are just going to benefit off of the system it's usually like very highly skilled people who are then made into their credentials when they come here like people who had like a degree in civil engineering and then they come here and those credentials Mm -hmm. suddenly don't matter and it's like immigrants are stealing our jobs, but it's like, no, actually immigrants come to this country and you completely disregard any sort of expertise or education they're even bringing. Yeah, it's happening. this country easily has the highest number of educated taxi drivers yeah. who are like so overqualified. Mm-hmm. For real. So I guess with white supremacy kind of being on the rise, like you just said, and I think it's obvious just by the amounts of, like just by the number of cases that have been happening, like, how did that happen? Where did, like, that spike just occur from? I was thinking about this, and I think, honestly, it's, like, a, a weird, like, domino effect of, like, people being more and more emboldened by, like, like a lot of overlooking in the system. Like, I was thinking yesterday about how um, after the mosque shooting in 2017, they tried to pass that um, bill against homo- uh, Islamophobia, sorry, and um, it got like squashed by all the conservatives in parliament. But um, like, if you think about that, what was the consequence of that happening? Like so many people lost their lives. It was like genuinely a senseless, senseless tragedy. How many like Muslim communities were deeply traumatized by that and like felt unsafe going to their places of worship and then nothing even came out of it. And you know what I mean? And even now with what happened on Sunday in London, like. I don't even know this man's name. I know his name is Nathaniel. I can't even remember his last name right now because I haven't seen it anywhere. 
You know what I mean? Like these people might be like, there might be headlines that say they're being arrested or apprehended or whatever, but we don't see them being punished the same way that we see racialized people being punished for doing the same thing. Like, um, I can't even like recall the amount of times I've seen somebody who like looks exactly like my cousin um, or even your cousin, like on the TV yeah. and they're like, his name is this, 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 Muhammad Ibn, this, and you know, whatever. Immigrated, and then you know, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're like, this is their life story. This is where their uh, parents came from. This is the village where they came from. Here's an illegal drug operation in the village that they came from. And you know their name and you know their whole life story. But I'm like, this man, all I know about him is his name is Nathaniel. He's 20 years old and he's white. And that's literally all I know. Like these people just don't get vilified in the same way. And so yeah. people who have the same ideologies as them don't feel that there's really any consequences to that, to those ideologies or to that hate. They don't even, not even necessarily like even slightly signal that it's a bad thing. Yeah. Like they might, there might be like slight, like individual cases where people are apprehended for, um, you know, acting on white supremacist ideology but that doesn't mean that white supremacist ideology is being apprehended or being stopped or being squandered like these people are let off light a hundred percent i okay for example nathaniel he was wearing a military grade helmet and a military grade vest if that Mm -hmm. had been and oh and by the way like when he was caught he was about a block away from the message yes if yes. that had been a racial minority, whether it's Black, mm-hmm. Asian, or Muslim, 100%, it would have, like, you know, like, the New York Times would have drawn up a map to show how much more time it would have taken to get to X place, how far he was mm-hmm. from Y place, you know, how in, like, 2010, he had Googled how to make a bomb at home. So, point mm-hmm. being, like, the kind of scrutiny that we face is, like, none other that kind of crime is labeled via a group when a white person does it it's just labeled as well not a group and secondly it's shown to just be an isolated case Mm -hmm. when it really isn't Mm -hmm. there's no like place where people are kind of directed to hate on or like direct their outrage to it's always just like well he was just some random dude but when it's somebody who's Muslim, they're given this whole subset of like over a billion people to blame and hate and directly outrage towards. Exactly. Yeah. Whenever it's a Muslim person doing it, like 9-11, you always get two sides. One, you get like a side of like pity for the people who, um, you know, went through that. And then on the other side, you also get an image of who did it. So you get a villain to hate and you get a villain to blame mm-hmm. and you hate everything and anything associated to that villain. Like to this day, you know, we still have 9-11 every single year. And it's been mm-hmm. like, what, 20 yeah. years? And it's been, uh, it's been like 20 years since 9-11, but Guantanamo Bay is still open. Yeah. And like the countless, okay, or for example, whenever soldiers come back from Afghanistan, they always talk about, okay, I was just reading this like this morning, actually. It was about a farmer and like the farmer had li- had quite literally just been standing on his farm in Afghanistan. And the soldier was just like, like he shot him just for fun. And mm-hmm. he shot him like several rounds, and it's it, like, and it's just, it's just a game. Mm-hmm. I think especially like, the way that propaganda operates, like the way in which we see mm-hmm. like these people as heroes sometimes, even like people fighting for like mm-hmm. our quote unquote national security is like the same way there's like those IDF soldiers on TikTok, like making thirst trap videos. Oh yeah, you know what I mean? Putting like a friendly face to violence because this violence is not violence, right? It's like yeah. justified or whatever. 
Yeah. And also when you look at IDF, it's so strange to see them because from the IDF, you get these videos of them going to parties or them like kissing their uniforms or holding guns or shooting targets. And then when you get Palestinians, it's just like, like walking around in rumble for like asking people to pray for them. And I still don't know how someone can say, why did Hamas shoot a rocket? Like it, like if like, I just don't understand. Okay. I've, I've been reading this book, which I read like a chapter of in my first year of second semester, first year, second semester university. Okay. Um, it's called The Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon. Apparently it's very controversial, but like a lot of Palestinians encourage people to read this book because it talks about how when you're under colonialism and when, you know, the larger evil you're fighting is white supremacy and that's what is against you, then like the natural response can sometimes be violence like if if your oppressor is being violent like that the same way that like you know um like u.s soldiers in afghanistan and in Iraq and all these places are incredibly violent in the same way that idf or iof is incredibly violent like why do these people who like are being oppressed by violence not able to respond with violence even if that violence is just purely reactionary or like kind of crude violence like they don't have sophisticated military technology but when they do it, because they're like associated with these stereotypes of violence and barbarism, it becomes an issue that they're blamed for and not something that they're reacting to rightfully. Like it's, again, it becomes something associated with this wider group mm-hmm. and not with like a personal reaction it becomes to being ju- like justified because it's like, oh, we do it. <laughs> they're doing it. This must be the right thing to do. I went to Indigo like three days ago. And then I also went to like the South side Indigo. So I went to two Indigo locations. And as soon as you walk in, you know how Indigo has like these um, like shelves of books that it just like advertises to you and it wants you to buy them. It's all like Jewish authored or like Zionist books. And a hundred percent Indigo like is trying to like over advertise that narrative which is a little concerning because fine, you can be apolitical, but if you're going to be apolitical, I expect just as many books about Palestinian lives. So people have an equal opportunity to learn about both. But in this case, they're systemically keeping out half of the story. And and especially in this mm-hmm. case, because we know this is a genocide that's happening. It's a human rights viol- like a violation. So why is it so hard for you to stand up for someone who's, you know, like just dying because of who they are? Yeah, unless you're profiting off of it, right? Yeah. And like, um, I think what yesterday at that vigil, um, a sheikh at one of the local mosques in London made this remark, which a lot of like Zionists on um, social media attacked him for, which he said, like, what's happening here is directly related to what's happening in Jerusalem and in Gaza. And he was talking about this larger system of white supremacy that like, you know, emboldens people to target people based on like these arbitrary things like markers of identity mm-hmm. you know what i mean the same way that palestinians are targeted for being palestinian this innocent family was targeted just because of the way that they looked and the faith that they presented right and people went off on him like they completely went off on him and it was like like was he wrong <laughs> like are you saying he was wrong because i didn't see any of them say he was wrong they're just like this is anti-semitic which he didn't mention jewish people and it's really interesting how people say anti-Semitic because Semitic includes like any of like the Arab languages. So technically speaking, if you're anti-Semitic, you're against yourself because you're also a Semite. Technically speaking, like the Arabs in Palestine 
Lebanon, Syria, Jordan are not ethnically Arab. Like Arab is a political identity. You know what I mean? It's a it's yeah. a political like pan ethnic linguistic political identity. Like a lot of people use it as a political marker. Um, but like ethnically, we're Semitic. Like we're indigenous to that region. Palestinians are indigenous to that region. Um, and like I think anti-Semitic is specifically kind of used to refer to Jewish people. But I also think like it's wild that they would say that because it's like, do you know who you are targeting when you say that? Like Palestinians are indigenous to this place. They didn't come here after the Romans expelled the Jews. Like that is not, that, that is not the plot of the story. You know, like, I don't know where you were reading the story, but don't the plot. Yeah. And more importantly, I feel as if the problem isn't even just the fact that like Jewish people live there or that it's like an Israeli settlement. The problem has now just become the kinds of human rights violations that occur on the daily basis. If you let them like sit there in peace and get olives off of their olive trees and just read books all day, I guarantee you they would never bother you again. I think it's wild. I was talking about this the other day with um with my dad um about how like a lot of times people blame Hamas and that's when they go and like they bomb Mm -hmm. a school, they bomb a United Nations hospital, like they do these things that are categorically war crimes. They're like Hamas was in there. You know how I know that's just factually incorrect. Like, how many leaders of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the Palestinian Front for Liberation, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, like, these leaders who are part of these very organized groups of people resisting Israeli occupation were systematically assassinated. Like, Hassan Kanafani, who was part of the PFLP, was assassinated in Beirut. You know, uh, Yasser Arafat also assassinated. Like, all of these leaders of these groups that were making major strides were assassinated. But it's like, you know who runs Hamas. He has like press conferences. If they actually thought Hamas was a threat, it's sad to say, but Hamas would not be there. Like they are genuinely just targeting infrastructure that is like essential to Palestinian livelihood in these places where Palestinian livelihood is already at risk. Like, and again, it plays off of that stereotype of like, you know, people from Mm -hmm. the quote unquote Middle East are like barbaric and the aggressor. And like Israel has the Iron Dome which literally protects them from Hamas's People in Tel Aviv were like, out to brunch, out to brunch. And I, I think I hear Hamas bomb. Meanwhile, in Gaza, like literally generations of families are being like carpet bombed. And it's like, do you not, do, no. do you not see that there's zero correlation here? It's not an equal fight. And I think that even like, it's definitely not about faith. Like if you see how they treat Palestinian Christians who have literally been Christians since the advent of Christianity, like, you know, they were barred from entering the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They are targeted just because they're passing, like, their face does not matter in the eyes of the IDF. It does not matter in the eyes of settler violence. It does not matter in the eyes of state-sanctioned violence. Like, it's, it's, it's a non-issue, really. It's just a propaganda tool because people have a certain view of Muslims, so every Palestinian is painted as Muslim, like, But how is this also linked to racism against Black people Asians, indigenous people, and I'd also mm-hmm. say sick people because they they also have like the indicator of wearing a turban, um, and so that also makes them stand out, which then leads to larger amounts of racism against them as well. Mm-hmm. I think when you know white supremacists are emboldened or people who act on white supremacist ideology are emboldened, it does not just affect you know one subset of people, and like I think we can um, see this even like from the the like invention of the concept of orientalism which like if people are listening and have never heard of orientalism it's like the 
sort of like Western imagination of people who are not from the West, which that's sort of meant to be a vague um, thing, like anybody who's not from the West, because those people are kind of made into a monolith of races and, you know, ethnicities um, that are then, you know, systematically become, systematically become targets of white supremacy. Um, so like the same way that, you know, the Middle East was imperialized and Africa was imperialized and South Asia was imperialized is the same way that indigenous land is continually imperialized in Canada. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and I also think like when we look at the events that happened in Alberta the past 10 months, like especially the more like violent attacks against Muslim women were against black Muslim women. And you can see those um, intersections of race and religion and gender and how, you know, those are also targets of white supremacy. And like, um, like I said, like white supremacy doesn't, is like, I don't want to say they're like, it's like an equal opportunity offender because it's not like, there's definitely relative privilege within that. But it's, yeah. it's once white supremacy is emboldened, it's emboldened against all people, you know? Um, like, it's not just like, oh, well, these Muslim women were being attacked. It's like, no, it was racialized Muslim women. You know what I mean? It's not just like Asian people were being attacked it's like that was also orientals and that was also people putting this like image of Asians in their head um that then resulted in like white supremacist violence for example I know like with the Asian one that really spot like spiked up with COVID and how people just may called it like the China virus which is so illegitimate first of all Mm -hmm. secondly yeah by what logic logic. right and then secondly (laughs) another really painful thing was that the fact that like Chinese immigrants have been here significantly before a large number of white immigrants Mm -hmm. were even here literally Literally built this country country. like in Canada the entire railway was built on the backs of Chinese immigration and Mm -hmm. those Chinese laborers were paid literally pennies for like months of work or they weren't paid at all they were kept in like camps when like the war happened you know like the kind of like things that they essentially had to endure and now this because of like a virus that China had no control over which which like became a huge problem in countries that are predominantly white and have like white people making policy around this virus like how bad was it in the U.S. right how bad was it in parts of Europe Mm -hmm. right it's like is it really the China virus or are your governments just really irresponsible yeah, or for example, when like the British variant came out, I didn't see anyone attacking white yeah, people. Yeah, but also I... what you're saying about Sikh people and like how just because of how they look lots of times, especially post 9-11, they were targets of Islamophobic violence, despite not even being Muslim, because of these stereotypes that are emboldened by white supremacy that like don't even make sense, just the same way that calling it the China virus does not make sense and is inspired by stereotypes, like all of that is like so interconnected and even though white supremacy kind of um manifests in different ways in relation to different groups um it is still very much like an interconnected struggle that we can see you know whether it be um you know even like uh like from palestine to turtle island it's it's a very interconnected struggle I think Black people and Indigenous people easily get it the worst, and each one of them for different reasons. Indigenous people because they're just not given any rights to land, and when they are, it's it's like the most pathetic rights in the most pathetic ways. Like, it's not enough rights to actually make something out of it, but enough rights to kind of tell the media outlets <laughs> that, well, we've kind of done enough for you. Like, give them a it reserve, is, but don't give them it, water to the reserve. It actually boggles my mind, because when the Kamloops Residential School, um, when, like, those 
children were exhumed right or like found right Mm -hmm. um Justin Trudeau obviously ran gave an apology but it's like you're still fighting land protectors in British Columbia there's still like countless reservations without water clean water you still have not addressed like the problem of missing and murdered indigenous peoples like you are literally just saying words and you hold all the power in this country you hold the most power in this country and you're just saying words um, something that was wild that I learned uh, like a few years ago was Enoch Reserve, which is just west of Edmonton, doesn't have clean water because the lake that was given to that reserve was like used as a shooting range, like a practice shooting range. So it literally has arson, uh, arsenic bombs in the bottom of it that have been leaking arson, Ar- arson uh, leaking arson, no, oh, leaking arsenic. Um, so the people who live on Enoch Reserve, right, the indigenous peoples who reside there and who tried, you know, who um, live within their community there um, and try to sustain community there have had to literally pay for years I think I don't know if it's still like this um, I think they tried to do something about it but I'm not totally sure if they have um, but they had been paying for water trucks to come from Edmonton like paying for water trucks to come from Edmonton when they're given they're supposed to be given a clean a freshwater lake mm-hmm. that could just be like sanitized but it can because it has toxic chemicals in it you see the cash 22 so it's always like there's like for example like with Edmonton like we have the North Saskatchewan River running for us and so it's like the perfect supply of water however they would and like that's done because early on settlers could you know move on the North Saskatchewan River and so that's why they kind of like built Fort Edmonton mm-hmm. however I, I feel as if the government just doesn't do enough to even like do enough ecological research to, or like geographical research to make sure that reserves are situated on places that have enough resources mm-hmm. to sustain a growing population. And if you look at South Edmonton, just south of the river, and it's not done in good faith yep, whatsoever. No, literally not at all. It's all it's all mm-hmm. profiteering. Like if you look at just south of Edmonton, kind of near where the University of Alberta is, um, that was supposed to be a Papa's Chase reserve, but like because of Frank Oliver, who we all hate. Who there's a still neighborhood named after him and they've tr- been trying to rename it for like years um because of him and he was fully affiliated with the kkk at that point by the way he was mayor um he like felt like edmonton was expanding too much and the papa Chase reserve was too close to the edmonton city mm-hmm. core and so they just moved them even though that is that was their sovereign land they just were like no no which is wild because it was a we like need to cleanse was, the land. It, I learned about that and I was like, that doesn't even, like, how was that even legal? But the thing is, it wasn't. It's not legal. It was illegal. That's the whole point. It's literally stolen land and it always has been. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. That's, wow, I'm sorry. My, my brain's just t- like doing a quick spin off. <laughs> okay, so let's talk kind of about like black people and like specifically black Muslims. How are they a unique target? Because I know that when Islamophobia first really stemmed off, that's like that was one of the initial points that it kind of got off of. And then the majority of the attacks that happened in Edmonton were also against mm-hmm. a black Muslim woman. Mm-hmm. I think um, just by virtue of you know being at the intersection of being black and a woman and visibly muslim these women were not necessarily like quote-unquote easier targets but they were more visible targets um and i don't think it's a coincidence that the black women who were attacked in alberta um were the majority of violent attacks 
Like, mm-hmm. not it wasn't just a verbal abuse. It wasn't threats. It wasn't attempted assault. It was assault. Like, it was, it was physical violence perpetuated against them just by virtue of their skin color in conjunction with, like, their faith marker and their gender. Um, I think as well that kind of um, ties back into, like, um, like BLM Yeg's call to defund EPS because oh you God, see the how like these these um, these things are dealt with and it's like you know we have technically we have security at transit centers but they're like need a grade on education and six months of training and usually they don't do anything sometimes they even make it worse like you see them even throw people off of the train just for sitting on there without a bus pass and it's like minus forty it's like you know what I mean these like decent systems are like very interconnected and I think um especially with the fact that these these like literal physical attacks against these women were just treated as isolated events once again and were not considered like another symptom of white supremacy in this province which is like like we are very much a Canadian epicenter of white supremacy like especially Edmonton Calgary like these are where a lot of people congregate like if you've seen the Facebook groups, they're all like, yeah, I'm from St. Albert. I'm from Sherwood Park. I'm from here. I'm from this, this part of North Edmonton. And like, you know, they're all like, we definitely live in a hot spot, but it's not treated like that. It's just treated like, oh, well, this is so sad. I'm so sorry. You know what I mean? And I yeah. think when it is treated like that, it's not treated as, when it's not treated as like a systemic problem, when it's not treated as something that is very much like, um, you know, ingrained in our culture that like these people's bodies are disposable, these people's bodies are targets. Um, it's like makes so much more sense how, you know, the fight against Islamophobia is the same as, you know, the fight for BLM. Like, yes, we should be defunding the police because what are they actually doing for this issue? You know yeah. what I mean? You mentioned something that I really want to talk about actually, which was the police their responsibilities and kind of how irresponsible they have been with everything so what do you kind of have to say about that Mm -hmm. I think um I was going to mention as well like when I was I was also like verbally attacked and almost assaulted um it ended up getting reported to the police because the man like threatened my life and like said he was going to kill me um and there was like bystanders and stuff but when I went to the police they one second sorry can you fully tell us what happened let's just like rewind a little yeah I was I was have you ever been assaulted and what did that look like um I've never been physically Mm -hmm. assaulted but I've definitely like I think if you ask most women who are uh like visibly Muslim they have some sort of story whether it's just like a comment in passing or somebody literally coming up to them and being like no I think I'm Mm -hmm. going to like end your life right this second um and that range is definitely like it's a scary range um but basically what happened to me was I was at the University of Alberta Transit Center and this was from like every single building on campus was locked um, because of COVID. So like I couldn't get in anywhere. So I was like, I'll just wait for my bus here. And I was waiting there and this man just came up to me and started yelling at me. He was like, um, like making racialized comments to me. He was saying like, I'm like going to kill you and your people. And then he like kind of went to swing at me and then like a man stopped him who was like an ETS bus driver and he made sure like I got home safely. So um, it was like a kind of a close call um, in that way. But when I, when it was speaking to the police about it, I was like thinking like how this is such a horrible process to go through. Like for somebody 
who has just been attacked. Like, especially if it had been worse than that. Like, I think I was kind of like, honestly, if that bus driver had not been like, I'm so worried for you, like, please let me save you so he doesn't come back and hit you. Please let me make sure you get home safely. Like, if he had not done that, I would have just gone along with my day. I'm like, hmm, yeah, this happened three weeks ago too. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but when you go through the process of reporting yeah. that to the police, so you yeah, so when you go through the process of reporting that, it's very much like a re-traumatizing mm-hmm. experience. Like, you have to tell it to like three people. You have to write a written statement. And I just kept thinking, like, are they making me say it over and over again because they just really can't bother to write it down? Or are they looking for, like, inconsistencies in my story? Like, I kept wondering, like, why would they be doing that? It was really weird to me. And I was, when I was mm-hmm. reporting, I was saying, like, you know, I don't think you're going to find this man. He was literally, his eyes were covered, his head was covered, his face was covered. He was fully covered. And he ran out. You know what I mean? And I don't know where he went. And... You know what I mean? I didn't expect anything to come of it. Um, but then at the same time, like, I was I was just saying, like, I just want this in municipal records. Like, these types of things, like, I was just tired of it. It happened so many times within the past few years when I had been taking public transit and I had to be, like, hanging out in the downtown core where, like, all these random white men would come up to me and start yelling at me. And it's just like, this should be recorded in municipal records. Like, why is this not something we're keeping track of? Because I promise if there was, like, an easy way for like people to report that they were there was hate crimes against them um there would be so much more than there than there were reported like I know it's like people are boggled at this whole like oh within like 10 months there was this many attacks against Muslim women it's like no I'm sure that happens on the daily these are just more violent and could be technically categorized as a hate crime like if that man had not threatened to kill me and had not tried to hit me Mm -hmm. it would not be a hate crime which is like ridiculous and if that bill had passed in 2017 after the Quebec mosque shooting that defined Islamophobia and defined what like Islamophobic hate was then all of these things that happened to Muslim women like the daily um experience would be able to be recorded and we would have statistics to show that like these things do happen that like Islamophobia does exist like I think it's wild when you know senseless things that like what happened in London on Sunday Every single politician began my speech with like, Islamophobia is real. Babe, did you just figure that out? Like, did you just figure that out? Because you're a little bit late to the party. Yeah. You know, just saying, like, I don't know. Maybe we didn't invite you soon enough, but I don't think it's really my fault, you know? Elections are also coming yeah. up. That's why. Mm-hmm. Um, They're trying to buy yep. a vote. Like, I, I didn't need to tell me that Islamophobia is real, though. Like, who are you talking to? Are you talking to, like, the people who are reeling from this event? Or are you talking to the people who are, like, don't really care? And are you trying to make them care? Because, like, if they don't care that this is happening. Yeah. You know, are they really the people we want to be rallying and support with? Are they really the people we're going to be, like, extending our resources mm-hmm. to? But, anyways, to kind of go back to what I was saying, like, I think mm-hmm. um, when we deal with the police in these instances... Um, they don't necessarily, they never address the root of the problem. Like they are reluctant to address the root of the problem because that's too hard. It's so much easier to find someone and lock them up um, and blame it on like one single person than to blame a larger problem. And again, that goes back to that double standard of like, um, you know, if it's, if they're a black person, if they're Muslim, if they're like a racial minority, if they're any sort of marginalized person, that whole group is blamed. But if it's a white person, then nobody, it's just an isolated incident, right? 
And I remember as well, they actually did end up finding the man. The man who attempted to hit me took the bus to Ayadab and he pushed a woman in a burqa to the floor. Like he literally tried to push her into the street. So he actually, he went, oh my God. he ended and up being apprehended. I have no idea what happened to him. But I just remember thinking like, they were like, yeah, we found him. He's not affiliated with any white supremacist group. And they sounded so like um, relieved to be able to say that. And I was like, that does not make me feel any better. Is that supposed to be like making me feel better that he's not officially associated with a white nationalist group? Because regardless of his affiliation, like he is a white supremacist. Like he does harbor white supremacist ideology. And he used that to go harm people, to go harm women. Like, you know, I don't, I feel like that's so lost on like the quote unquote system that like these things are never an isolated event. Like hate crimes are not just like, oh, this person was like, you know, he watched the wrong media channel. You know, he went into like a weird rabbit hole on the internet and decided he hated Muslims. Like it is, it is a much bigger mechanism than that. You know what I mean? And I also, Another thing I was going to say was like mm-hmm. that man, that transit driver who made sure I got home okay. I, I remember afterwards, he was like trying really hard to comfort me. Like he, he was like saying like, I'm really concerned for your safety. But then he also started to ask me questions. He was asking me if I was okay. I remember him saying, um, he's like, where are you from? And I was like, oh, I'm Lebanese and Egyptian. And then he's like, oh, when I first immigrated to Canada, a nice Lebanese family let me stay with let me stay with them they were like some of the most hospitable people I've ever met and he was like you know relating to me and trying to make me feel better in a way that like I don't think any random white police officer ever could (laughs) you know what I mean um and I think like that sort of community Mm -hmm. care is so much more important than police presence in communities because the police didn't even stop it from happening you know what I mean like the fact that there is campus police the fact that there's transit police did not mean that this kind of violence did not happen. It doesn't mean that it wasn't enacted. You know what I mean? Like truly they did not play as big a role nor do they ever play as big a role as the people in the immediate vicinity, right? Who like are witnessing it and are able to stop it and, you know, help the people who are affected by it, you know? And I think that kind of, again, that goes back into what BLM Yeg is demanding from city council, which is to defund the police because you know, if we were to invest in our communities, maybe even, you know, people would be able to um, have like training and de-escalation and that kind of thing. So when these things happen, it can be stopped by the people most immediately there. And we don't have to call someone and wait for the police to show up or whatever. Because the police didn't even show up. Like how many Muslim women in Alberta have to be attacked before we understand that like the police being present in our communities or you know, having their funding increased by percentages upon percentages every year is not going to stop this from happening. Like it's investing in our communities who are the ones affected and who are the witnesses that is going to stop this from happening. Yeah, or at least putting that funding in a way to increase representation, right? Like I'm 100% sure if there had been, okay, even if a Muslim police officer or a Sikh police officer hadn't been the one to help you, but if they had even just existed in that system to influence the kinds of decisions that are being made to kind of help balance out the kinds of biases and prejudices that exist, I think, I think just that alone would have so helped many, so much. Like, um, like after 
like last summer when BLM sort of like became much more mainstream than it was, a lot of people were like even saying like, no, we don't need anti-bias training. We don't need this. We don't need that. Or they were using it as like a flaunt. Like we do have anti-bias training, Mm -hmm. but like, I don't know. My whole point is kind of like, if it can't stop it from happening, then why are we relying on it? You know what I mean? If it's purely like reactionary, Mm -hmm. then I feel like there's much better like expertise. There's people who have different set of training who would maybe be better equipped to handle these kinds of things after the fact. Um, I think that's what people mean by like investing in our communities. Like, um, you know, just being able to like, if these things do happen, it's not like they can always be stopped because clearly they can't like, you know, unless somebody actually comes and physically stops a person from doing something, um, like you can't just like call someone and like hope and pray that they'll be there in time to stop it. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, that's kind of like my my point I'm trying to make is like um, the police don't necessarily stop violence from happening. And I think like relying on them after the fact when they don't necessarily have the skills to help like it's just kind of like we're, we're going for the wrong target there and attack was done on you but and you've also obviously heard about the kinds of attacks that are happening so as a muslim woman who wears a hijab attends university is probably planning on some kind of professional career and like planning to make her footstep on the world how does this impact you i think um mostly it's like really it's always really difficult when these things come out because I think as a community, we are re-traumatized. Like um, after that happened to me, my mom was really, really worried like about me going anywhere by myself, like anywhere, even if it was just like in Northside, which is like mostly immigrants, (laughs) like mostly people I know, right? Like by face, if not by name. Um, Yeah. Like she was really worried about me. And again, after what happened in London, she was like, I don't think anyone's taking transit if it's dark out by herself. Like, I don't think you're going to be allowed to do that. I think you should just drive to university. I'm like, I can park at university, but okay. Um, And it's kind of, it feels very, very stifling because it feels like, um, you know, it's almost like we are walking targets and no matter, no matter like who is arrested after these things happen, we still kind of feel unsafe because there's no real action towards change. Um, I think as well like I don't know I think a lot of these like I just kept thinking when I was thinking about all these attacks happening in Alberta like just how many of these instances have probably gone unreported um just because they feel like they don't matter like they just feel like they're kind of like we said before like you know the price we pay I think that we should expect if we're going to be wearing a hijab um I think like it's very it's very disheartening and like very demotivating um, to think that like I can't even walk down the street in like the body that I was born in or the faith symbols that I choose to wear like without having that threat constantly looming over me you know what I mean and I don't think that's like a unique point of mm-hmm. view I think that's like a lot of hijabi women would like agree with that yeah I I completely feel that. Also, kind of on how desensitization. I know on Facebook I saw this post about um, an like an immigrant student, either from Vietnam or China, but he was like very obviously Asian, 
and he his arm was stabbed like when he was trying to take the LRT from University Station and no one called mm-hmm. 911 no one stopped to help him no one asked him if he was mm-hmm. okay and you have everyone here trying to claim oh Canada is such a nice country we say sorry for everything well clearly I can see that because you don't you you really don't and you, you need to get over the stereotype you have a responsibility and there was no meet like news or media coverage until he posted it on Facebook and it went a little viral and that's I think just because like his own circle of like friends or his own colleagues were able to make <laughs> it viral and it's also and you know what else is interesting in order to prove our value or in and in this case his value he had to list off how he's doing like valuable work with the um with like the extension with the LRT extension to prove that he's valuable him just mm-hmm. being human isn't enough like I have never like yeah. never in my life seen like a white person have to defend their own humanity or have to like defend themselves by using some kind of economic metric it's always been like oh my god this poor mm-hmm. human and they've been hurt it almost feels like you know we have to prove like we're one of the good ones we're not one of the bad ones you know like the same way he had to kind of almost like feed into like a model minority myth for people to like he felt like that was what he needed to do for people to care you know what I mean which is so sad to think about because it's like you know I feel like that just again is like are people that desensitized to like the suffering of certain humans over others that like you know we can see these horrible things happen to white people and then it's like a really huge deal but then this man has to go and put his heart like on his sleeve on Facebook and recount this incredibly traumatic event for anybody to even know what happened Mm -hmm. you know what I mean yeah that's exactly it spot on all right so how do stereotypes feed into attacks I think like I can't necessarily speak for other minority groups but I think um like as somebody who's visibly Arab and is often racialized as Arab like I think I'm kind of I can kind of be racially ambiguous I've been told I'm kind of racially ambiguous but Mm -hmm. especially once you wear the hijab like because the Muslim identity and the Arab identity are like not given like separate breaths in the western imagination um (laughs) just sort of like you put in the hair like wow you look extra Arab right now (laughs) You're looking extra. I have, really, I have a really funny story about this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I think like, again, like, a bank as account a... with TD. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, go for it. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like really related to this. So um, in my second year of university, I opened up a bank account with ATB and I went there and the lady asked me like, where are you from? And I was like, oh, like my family's from Pakistan. They immigrated when I was like a year old, you know, like the standard. And she's like, where is that in the Middle East? And I was like, it's not, oh my it's God. like dead center is South Asia. Like, I'm sorry. Like she definitely has an education. She works for ATB. She's, she's clearly been on cust- been in customer service for a while. And yet, like, I'm, and yet, like, I don't know, I, I'd expect some kind of basic ge- like geographical knowledge. So a hundred percent, like Muslim Arab is not the same. It's like bare minimum geographical knowledge. Like <laughs> this woman has never yeah. looked at a map before. She doesn't. She's never looked at one ever. ever. Um, but I think as well, like I was, like as I said, like I had this literal awakening in like my second semester, first year. This was because I was taking class on race and ethnicity, and I got to read all these things okay. that like kind of gave me the vocabulary to understand my experiences, um, and to understand what I was like feeling and seeing, but like in very clear terms, um. And when I was reading, I was reading Orientalism by Edward Said, 
um, which is like my favorite book. I, I read like one chapter in that class and then I went and like religiously highlighted it because I was like, every sentence <laughs> is perfect. Um, but I like really started to understand like the kinds of things people would say to me in these attacks and how they have their roots in like imperialism from so long ago. Like, like these Arab stereotypes of like either I'm like oppressed, but at the same time I'm like hypersexual, but then like at the same time I'm an endlessly aggressive terrorist. And it's like all these things sort of happen at once. And that's why people feel that like if you're wearing the hijab and you're kind of coded in that like Arab way, if you can be coded in an Arab way, not saying everybody who wears hijab does, but like if you are coded as Arab, it's almost like, you know, people feel like you're so submissive and timid that I can come up to you and scream in your face, but also um, they might feel like they're afraid of you, like, do you have a bomb on you? But then that hypersexual element also comes in because I've noticed so many, like, I've heard so many stories as well as had my own experiences where, like, sexual harassment is part of the attack. Like, they'll literally, if they'll call you, like, they'll say some sort of disgusting thing to you, and when you ignore them, they're like, like, you dirty Arab, like, like, literally, they'll just jump from one to the other because they're so interconnected with each other. And I think like, I don't know, I think um, those kinds of like racial stereotypes when combined with like being visibly Muslim can be really damning, especially when like, you know exactly what, like where these comments are coming from. You know what I mean? And especially with the comments, the comments always catch me off guard. I'm like, how did you even come up with that? <laughs> it's like, you're so smart. It's so creative. Like, how did you flip the switch like that, sir? I'm like, <laughs> yeah no trust me when I watched like okay, first I saw the news on reddit and um, everyone kept commenting like whoa I can see why this is a problem like the reddit comments are pretty evident but then like the moderators kept erasing them okay it's okay I, I need to like backtrack a little so there's um a, a subreddit on reddit called our Canada and they just post like things that are happening in the country so firstly, recently, this screenshot came out about how one of their moderators is actually a white supremacist. And he like, and he's, or he, like they are one of the top moderators. So what that means is that they approve or can take down posts, which can say a lot about the kind of coverage that this Reddit is, that, that this Reddit sub is getting, or this like Reddit feed is getting. Anyhow, so there was a post made about um, the London shooting, not the London shooting, sorry, like the London accident that had happened, not the accident, but the terrorist <laughs> attack that had happened. Um, and from there, everyone was like, wow, so many comments are deleted. And I get why it's a problem considering all of these comments. And then people were just like, oh, I saw the comments, like they were just XYZ terrible. And I was like, wow, I really wonder what those comments said until I went on YouTube. And that's where I was like, whoa, this is it. And I like I don't know like do people need to say to see like a dead body in front of them like like you know a full-on cadaver in order to feel some kind of sympathy mm -hmm. I feel like um that whole kind of um like reaction to where like people feel um like they need concrete proof in order to like grieve with their communities when these kinds of things happen like the same thing with like George Floyd like I could not even fathom that people re were reposting that video to that extent like these things inevitably go viral, but it's like, I could not, I could not like believe that it was like eight minutes. I'm like, how are you guys watching this eight minute video? And then like, yeah, like eight minutes of this man suffering and you're just like, yeah, this is chill. Here you go. And that's 
like what literally made the mainstream like mainstream america the mainstream global north care about that and i thought that was like so weird because i'm like how dehumanized do like the, the suffering of people of color need to be for people to actually care about it whereas like i was thinking about i remember i think this was in calgary like a few months ago there was those those up kids and they like i think they they killed a police officer and i can't remember if it was on purpose or by accident but like the way in which people were like this is like an like a day of mourning it's like obviously it's a bad it's a bad thing that happened but my whole thing is like people were so sad about it whereas people had to see like you know people literally sometimes have to see literal cadavers for them to care about other people's suffering and it's mm-hmm. just so it's so weird to me it's such a weird phenomenon yeah yeah no I agree for example even when like the New Zealand like the New Zealand shooting happened in the masjid and mm-hmm. like that was something else and then right after that we had like Siri, like a domino effect of like m- like more message shootings happening in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. I think like um, because those people in New Zealand had like body cam footage of them doing these horrible things, like that was I think part of the reason why people cared so much is because they actually saw it happen. Like I think it's so easy. I also think. Oh sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Keep I was going to say like I think that's why people like. Um, you know, reacted the way they did to it and like to the extent because that's like not the first time a mosque has experienced that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like maybe in New Zealand, because it's so small, maybe that's the first time in New Zealand, but it's definitely not the first time in Canada. It's definitely not the first time in America. But it's like because people literally saw this happen, they like, you know, it sparked something for some reason. Also, do you know what else made it different? The kind of rhetoric that their prime minister made mm-hmm. about it where it wasn't a rhetoric of pity, it wasn't a rhetoric of empty promises or empty stories. It was her concretely saying this is terrorism and this is never going to happen again in this country. Mm-hmm. And people bought into that because they trust their prime minister, they trust what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. I think as well, like that lack of neutral language is something that's really important. Like, mm-hmm. I think like we see that, especially with so many Canadian politicians, like they just love to be achingly neutral. Um, like. I don't know some of them aren't some of them really are like I don't like you know I'm not they're not nonpartisan. like they're in parties so they can like you know they can have opinions but it's like a lot of times like for example like um like okay so what how many how many months ago was it that uh Jagmeet Singh got thrown out of parliament because he called somebody racist um and then I love Jagmeet <laughs> Same. Like, I don't believe in idolizing politicians. If we're going to idolize anybody, at least let it it's be. It's 100%. Like, I have never wanted to break up with someone as much as I want to, like, end Trudeau. Oh, my God. Like, that's like too. his fake apoliticism yeah. just bothers like, me. Like, even with the London attack, like, Jagmeet Singh was like, this is an incitement of hate against Muslims. Like, he was saying it very explicitly. He was naming the problem very explicitly. And Justin Trudeau was like, assalamu alaikum. I'm actually so sorry, dude. But I'm not gonna do anything about it. Yeah. Like I'm sorry, but I'm not gonna like, do anything. And the same thing with when he apologized after the thing about Kamloops residential school came out, he was like, "Yeah, I'm so sorry." But then he abstained to vote when Jagmeet Singh was like, "Hey, maybe we should stop fighting residential school survivors in court." And the entire Liberal Party abstained. I was like, mm, "You're really sorry, aren't you? You're 
You're a very convincing yeah. actor. I, f- I feel like his publicist just has like a template for speeches at this point mm-hmm. where it's like start off with I like with using um, like an introduction from the culture or like religious group that you're associated with right mm-hmm. now. And then you will apologize, like, you know, wink twice or blink twice and then continue. <laughs> Even like his body movements are mapped out. Oh my God. Oh, 100% they are. Like you see no passion. Like I, I really don't want, I don't want like to the, see when, you know what? Like I hate conservative politics, but at least in conservative politics, the politician takes a stand and like defends what he believes in. So if anything, they have more integrity than the liberals do right now. Honestly, are the liberals actually liberal? That's not a real question. No. They're like center right at best, like at best. Like if we have our fingers yeah, crossed. and I- they're just like they're just like right i agree i'm gonna wear socks with a pride flag on them but i will still make hateful legislation like that's it's it's very much like we're going to do these performative things to make people think we care about them but legislation wise and like we're just not going to use our power in your favor like basically okay so we've spoken a lot about like the problems and also what institutions can essentially do to make them better. But what can we do to make them better, which is like individuals from like the Muslim, Black, Asian, Indigenous communities? And also what can allies do? So I guess that'd be like white people who aren't racist. <laughs> oh, to be oh, white people who aren't racist. Um, you're a rare breed, if I'm being honest. Um, but like, good for you. Um, <laughs> I think we're like, like people who are marginalized like I think really getting on the same page is important like I think a lot of us are very divided because our communities all separately face so many issues and we end up kind of being like well if I like I think a lot of people feel this way where they're like like, well if I stand for this issue I can't stand for my own which is just not true like I think you know when we stand with the indigenous community and we you know stand for the kinds of movements the indigenous community is trying to accomplish like when we stand for land back when we stand for black lives matter we are standing for ourselves like we can't just like expect ourselves to be liberated and be like hey well the rest of you i guess can fend for yourselves like i don't know that's not really the attitude we should have um i also think for allies like especially when it comes to islamophobia um i think i think a lot of white people like really underestimate how much their voices are valued um, it's kind of like the concept of like white woman tears. Like white woman tears, like people just cry when they see white women cry. They're like, this is the pinnacle of all emotion. Um, and like we see that on the news all the time. Like even with the London shooting, like there was like a huge newsreel of like there's someone crying for so long, and I was like, um, I'm just gonna change the channel for now because this is making me feel worse. Um, but I think like yeah, they like don't underestimate like your own white privilege and what that means within your communities. Um, and how, you know, your opinion can change the opinion of others. Um, I also think, like, as, like, community members who exist, like, in the same, like, sphere as each other, we should be willing to stand up for each other, and when it comes to Islamophobia, that also means intercepting these attacks when they happen, Um, and not, like, intercepting just on a whim, but, like, maybe understand what de-escalation is and try to implement that instead of you know just letting things happen um Mm -hmm. and I also one more thing like maybe pressure your MPs never stop emailing them 
just like I don't know I I aggressively email my MPs I'm like do they have a reply maybe you think I'm I mean like depends sometimes it's an automated reply because you know it's about a specific thing but like sometimes they reply and it's actually genuine and I'm like but also I don't really like my MPs but other MPs but also Mm -hmm. if you're white sway sway your sway your jurisdiction and then (laughs) sway who your MP is like I think actually a lot of people are very curious about social issues they just are never given the vocabulary to understand what's happening um and you know I don't think like I think people's curiosity is something we should not understate and like something we should really take advantage of because if you're educated on something and somebody is showing curiosity mm-hmm. and willingness to I agree you like, could be the one it to teach sucks them. that even as yeah. a 10 year old I would always get asked about how's Islam? What does it mean to be a Muslim? But at the same time, if I just don't answer those questions or if my little sister doesn't answer Mm -hmm. those questions, no one else will. Like, I think for a long time, I was like kind of cynical. I'm like, people just need to like mind their own business. Like trust that Islam is fine and that you don't need to know everything about it to trust me. But I think at the same time, like I've I've grown since I was like 12 or whatever. Um, I'm definitely not 12 anymore. Um, Trust me but yeah and do you know what else yeah Yeah, no go for it sorry I was gonna say like I think like when we do get asked those questions sometimes like our knee-jerk reaction is to think like this person is going to try to fight me but I think a lot of times they're genuinely just curious they are which is a really good thing also like make yourself known Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree I think like um, in a lot of ways, like representation in the field, like isn't necessarily oh, yeah. the end all be all, but I think it's like one of the most powerful tools we have. It's the only tool that like, we have. I think a lot of, yeah, like I think honestly, like when you are able to like express what you've been trying to say your entire life um, and you have people who have a willingness to listen, like that is a really good thing and I think it's really exhausting for a lot of people um like I don't think that's like a invalid way to feel like I think it can definitely be exhausting always having to feel like you're explaining yourself or justifying yourself or you know especially like as a Muslim person I feel like I'm always kind of like trust me like I'm not this weird conservative zealot you think I am even if people don't necessarily express that but I think even being able to like lend our perspective in these spaces can be like a really powerful tool to sway what people even just once thought you know like it can really only take one person to make somebody you know curious enough to change their mind yeah also like for example if we can get like lawn signs which said i'm a muslim ask me questions or like drop by for tea i would totally put that up and i would love to talk to people and just you don't have to love me but just stop trying to like kill me like i'd really appreciate that yeah I think like um especially like in Alberta I don't know maybe this is just like my own caricature of Alberta but I'm allowed to have caricatures of Alberta if Alberta is going to have caricatures of me I feel like that's just a two-way street we're going to walk down but in in general Alberta is like not necessarily even that like the parts of Alberta we live in are overwhelmingly white but Alberta itself is overwhelmingly white our government is overwhelmingly white you know the people who represent us are overwhelmingly white um but I also feel that like a lot of our communities because they like live near or live <laughs> within like 
other racialized communities or marginalized communities, they're definitely like willing to understand and know. And I think as well, my dad was talking to me about this the other day, how he knows so many people who just get their information on Muslims from like the newspaper, like a literal physical newspaper because they're like old. Um, <laughs> if you if you read newspaper, you're not old, but these old people who are reading newspapers um, and are like just getting information on Muslims from like the Washington Post, like knowing a Muslim personally, being neighbors with a Muslim, you know, being acquainted with a Muslim and like just at the bare minimum seeing that we're like literally just regular normal people um is like also a really good thing like my dad always says there's so many people that he knows that like they didn't know me they probably hate me they probably hate muslims and like it's sad but it's true but it's also like imagine even like from i don't know an islamic perspective imagine like the barakah and the blessings you know you get from making peace with these people despite the barriers that you yourself face as like a muslim in canada um but yeah. yeah okay so we're coming to the end of our time do you have like any kind of like departing thoughts that you might want to leave the audience with um I don't really know I think like I don't know I think in general um don't be surprised when these things happen but be ready to take action when these things happen that's what I would say I think like it's really exhausting to see people being very reactionary whenever these things happen. Like, oh my God, this many Muslim women were attacked in Alberta. It's like, I literally could speak to any visibly Muslim woman and they tell me a story. They tell me like 10 stories. You know what I mean? I think like we have, we have superseded the need for reactionary politics. And I think we need to understand that like we have to implement proactive politics if we're actually going to do any of this. Like if we're going to, you know, fight for our place, fight for liberation. To end off this episode, I'd really like to thank Dahlia for speaking out on her personal experiences. That takes a remarkable amount of courage. I'd also like to thank the audience for being here and listening in on things we kind of had to talk about today. Lastly, with that being said, keep doing what debaters do best, debate. See you in the next one.